Welcome to Development Hell, one of four podcasts diving deep into the troubled roads of our favorite movies, musicals, movies. Hell, I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> but you have points for gusto. I think it is funnier if we say movies, music, movies, video games, movies, albums, and movies. <laughs> and more to be either miraculously completed or miserably abandoned. I am your host this week, Spike Kittrell, joined as always via the magic of the internet by Kyle Anderson and Richard Humphrey. This week's episode, of course, we are covering the 1982 sci-fi classic, Blade Runner. Wow, and that was off the dome. Whoa. That was, off the that dome. was completely hey, off the dome. Two rounds like, of Zip Zap Zop and you did that, man? Wow, <laughs> yeah, we, magic. We, we warmed up with digital, with Zoom Zip Zap Zop. Zoom Zap Zop. I <laughs> Zoom wrote Zip. that on the train and I uh, with the whole thing of like they're not gonna fucking get me this week I'm gonna fucking <laughs> say something good first oh that was pretty good that was great man I, okay yeah. so everyone <laughs> this isn't everyone a video podcast settle so the down is lost but there is oh. there is a visual <laughs> bit being done right now where Richard is yes. he has a giant syringe a blue syringe on FaceTime yeah he has a blue syringe of uh, jello shot and yeah. he is uh why did you bring this on the pod today uh i it just felt like a a real future drink and i wanted to drink like we're <laughs> yeah. in the future yeah out of a syringe <laughs> it does seem in keeping with like the kind of manic energy this movie was made with where it's like <laughs> and then what if like in the future they drink out of syringes <laughs> yeah, yeah. i don't like i love that blade runner is like what if weebs just ran government for a few years and so now Hell we yeah. look like this Hell yeah. Well, and it's sort of a movie that was made, again, like, in a, with an attitude of, like, what else? Like, okay, we have a story. That's that's really not what we're here for. Like, what else? Like, what, what's, like, it's a movie where there were several meetings about umbrellas. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, that's, so, that's, that's kind of my take with this movie is that, like, you almost can't tell a really interesting just a base story because the story of this movie is not that incredible it's sort of all the other ideas that it's playing with and like the the visual things that it did to pop culture but like you you kind of can't have a, a a super interesting story when you have to have three meetings about umbrellas you know what i mean like it kind of has to be simple sure it's kind of like the app like Avatar had to be Pocahontas because it was also Avatar. Right, right. <laughs> like, you wanted him to also write you the greatest fucking story ever. They, like, it's it's something that, um, who directed Rogue One? Like, the... the Gareth Edwards. Uh, Gareth. He said, like, he was so surprised when he started on Rogue One. Like, we can't just have plates. They don't have plates. There has to be space plates, and it has to be space shoes, and it has to be space chairs. And this is, again, one of those movies that, like, it's got such a radical idea of a future that it, it nothing could just be bought from, like, Macy's and go, okay, this extra is wearing what we bought at Macy's. Yeah, it definitely right. was like, it was more like you buy a storage container, and whatever was in there sort of also looks like the future. <laughs> right. Well, because, like, again, the idea is, and we'll get into this, like, the movie the, or the world in the movie looks like a mess on purpose. And I think it's one of the 
like most effective movie like messes and chaos ever like put in like the background of a movie um so i think i i'm realizing i picked this movie in a big way because i about once a year will start thinking about blade runner and then remind myself that i think for better or worse um this might be not my favorite but i think this and maybe its sequel are the best movies ever made and that's a sentiment that I don't mind other people not having. And with so with that, I ask, what are your guys' relationship to this movie? And in particular, the movie we're covering today, which is uh, Blade Runner, the final cut. Had, was this the first time either of you guys had seen this cut, to your knowledge? I had only seen the final cut for a while because uh, I had like a high school film class. So I was actually just taught by the journalism teacher. <laughs> and uh, he... Uh, he went and he showed us the uh, the final cut, and then he went all right, and showed us a YouTube video of all the stuff that was in like the theatrical to compare it and talk about how studios mess movies up. And uh, he was like, "It's just like this is awful, this is awful," and like just listing things like that. When it was really like, it found. Uh, I found out later he was BSing most of the course, and that like, but that was the only thing that kind of stuck through is something true in the idea of like film theory, you know. And uh, after that, the next time I watched that movie was like at like a friend's birthday party, like a couple years later on his 21st birthday party. He was like, you guys want to go to the strip club? And after the strip club, we watched Blade Runner. And then that was oh, the man. last time I watched Blade what Runner. A, what an <laughs> afternoon that would be. Right. Uh, and so what did you think of 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 seeing it here today like for this in this um, lens of like actually having to like study it and be older now because that was over like 10 years ago really and just like what i understand now about film and one what it takes to get one made and like what it takes from idea to screen just like this is a masterpiece at getting your shit done even if it costs yeah. your sanity yeah it's amazing it's all in focus and finished it's and I, there's like nothing can there's it's that it's a movie that it got that it got yeah, finished having written a script now i'm like how the fuck did you do this you know right <laughs> uh and kyle what about you i mean <clears throat> the thing about blade runner is that it's it's sort of this like goliath right like it's it, it yeah. is this like insanely impactful like it created a visual genre right of yeah. cyberpunk which yeah. now we're seeing with like this huge video game and like you know sort of all kinds of stuff but like i, I do think so much of that futuristic look in the style was really crystallized with this movie and it's like I mean, not only that, like just like so many ideas that the movie plays with are have been echoed in everything that's like Android or like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, you can't have like you're like, uh, what's that movie? Uh, Ex Machina. You can't have your mm -hmm. uh, ghost in the shell. I you don't have Fallout 4, you know, like, yeah, Fallout, Fallout 4 is intrinsically like, a ripoff of Blade Runner. Uh, Westworld, you know what I mean? Like all these yeah. things that are like sort of intrinsically like taking plucking one idea from the apple tree that is <laughs> Richard. It's so unfair with to ask us to be instantly okay with seeing someone drink out of a string. <laughs> 
that, but that's what this movie does to you too, though. You know, like no, I know. <laughs> yeah, you spend the this, whole this movie is like this chick's gonna cover herself in trash. Don't think about it for a minute. <laughs> well, it's a lot like it's like a fictional Gangs of New York where you have the same reaction of okay, I guess that happens in this world. Okay, yeah, yeah, where you just kind of like shake stuff off as like yeah, okay, cool. Well, We're accepting this world as a whole, as a world. If you know, Blade, they, they are really interesting, like sister movies if blade runner itself had like never come out when it came out and came out and say like 2014 nobody would really have accepted because they would want to demand it like a book on the science of how everything works you know like uh yeah i think blade runner benefited from have time to be the martian <laughs> yeah like uh. honestly like you'd have to talk about the direct yeah. well again it would have to i mean even blade runner 2049 ran into that yeah right. where it's like uh Audiences have been so spoiled with information on how like universes work that they can't accept the magic of a movie anymore. And I feel yeah. like uh, Blade Runner benefited from a time when people were excited about the magic of something that was in space and not Star Wars, but still worked. Sure. Yeah, and and go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, like <clears throat> to like, I mean, Blade Runner rips. Like, let's just say that, right? Fucking Blade honks. Runner rips. Yeah. It fucking, it fucking honks big old titties uh, podcast network. <laughs> it fucking, <laughs> it's a, it's a fucking dope ass movie. And, and I love its sequel so much too. Uh, oh man. We were talking about Which these we'll get into a little movies, bit. Uh, last week, sort of after we recorded the pod and I, I, I walked away from that conversation being like, man, I made it sound like I don't like these movies, but I do like these movies. I know. Right. <laughs> no. And I, and I, whenever I talk about these movies sound like I am making a legal case for them. Right. Right. So, so that is to say that, uh, I, I don't share the sentiment that it's like, one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, I think that, I think that actually the sequel, as much as I like it as like a tonal, cool sci-fi, mm-hmm. like think piece of a film. Right. I think it does have its own major flaws and like pacing issues and like substance issues. And, and I think that the sequel actually kind of brings down the score of the, two if you look at them as two oh man i i, I do yeah but, no i get that but I, I i like there's still if if you're doing like your c tier b tier a tier s tier like there's still s tier i just wouldn't put them sure. as like my personal s tier yeah it's you like it's I mean? objectively but, like, good but personally not my favorite you know like yeah it's personally like i just wish i was having I wish the movies were edited together a little tighter and I was having 10% more fun. And that's all I want from a movie. I feel like... But that's my flavor. And I understand that that's not what they wanted to flavor their film as. Right. And that's okay. (laughs) Hey, guys, it's cinema. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And and so... Go ahead. Oh, I'm just like, as a kid, I've always been obsessed with like the, just the imagery of like sci-fi novels and their covers and stuff. And I think yes, yes. The and one, that's the thing. I could watch footage from this world forever. Yeah, 2049. You know I mean? like, in specifically, every single shot looks like the cover of a sci-fi novel, and that's something that I yeah. love and adore about it. 
But I will well, say this. I will say this. Every scene in the original Blade Runner is infinitely more impressive to me mm-hmm. than any imagery they can do in 2049 because yep. it is so like at this point we've seen so much that it's not I'm, I know I'm like okay yeah that's some dude in a, on a computer did like set extensions and that's all matte and that's brought in digitally and mm-hmm. you know but like the original Blade Runner there are shots where you're looking at it and you're like my god these fucking people yeah. even if it, that's a in, miniature that's such an impressive yeah, it miniature <laughs> informed more by like you you watch it and you go, I know what wasn't possible back then. Yeah, I yes, totally. So what, what, how is this, like looking back 40 years on, you can still see some shots and not really understand how they did it. I, uh, I feel like the Leo DiCaprio totally. meme where I keep pointing at the screen going, that's good filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Well, and it, it's similar to watching like Mad Max Fury Road of like part of the movie's intrinsic value is the effort on screen mm-hmm. it's a- which i think with a movie like for me where that doesn't work is like the revenant where you're like well this movie is only impressive this isn't much of a movie which i think is something similar to like what kyle what you're talking about with with 2049 of like i see that a lot is happening here i see that a lot of this is working but most of this is like look ma no hands like filmmaking there's just like I feel like uh, that's what like Jungle 2049 has a lot of like even entire scenes in the movie where it'll just be like hey half the half the floor in this room was water this whole scene isn't that crazy <laughs> <laughs> and you're like I guess but why is this room so big then hey pal oh, man. you want to see our Elvis so, hologram I mean, we spent a lot of money on this uh, Elvis hologram but there's Love so much it. but there's so Hated much cool it. shit that those movies do that like you excuse it because you're like okay well this scene might be some of the dopest sci-fi shit I've ever seen or it might just be a reveal that half this room's floor is water <laughs> I also think there are two examples where uh, and maybe the second one more than the the first, just because of the wider net it casts. Mm-hmm. They're they're movies that are so um, uh, so lush visually, so technically wondrous, like um, like Avatar, like Tron Legacy, like these movies that are clearly like this is a success just because it's all on screen. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't need to have a groundbreaking narrative. But what I think these movies have over those examples is that all of the performances are so incredible and small and like nuanced. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure we have a whole part in this podcast about it. But obviously the tears and rain scene is like, yeah, it's one of the greatest monologues in film cinema history, if not the greatest. It's one of the, uh, it, this, I don't know, I don't think this is a stat you can find on a BuzzFeed, but like this movie has, I would imagine, the most sub Wikipedia pages. Not like its own wiki, but like that there's a whole Wikipedia page for that speech. There's a whole Wikipedia page for how many versions of this movie there are, of which there are seven. Well, it's and that just speaks to how many ideas are put on this fucking smorgasbord, you know, where it's like there's so much to pick at that it's been analyzed to the like to the core. And it's like even like every year someone still publishes something new about Blade Runner that like makes us think about it. Yeah. You know, it's just like. It, Blade Runner transcended being a movie and became more of just like overall a grander idea in the grand scheme a of world. things that you forget so 
that you honestly forget about like the movie itself. Like most people know Blade Runner, but don't know the movie at this point. Yeah, I think most people's memory of Blade Runner is textural. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you immediately but, but like hear are, the score and see the lights. Incredible performances in the second movie too. Like you were talking about. Like <laughs> no, that's the, what uh, I think. I think the performances in the, the second the, might be a little hologram, stronger. Um, I would agree with that. Oh, joy. A, yeah, joy. Gener- as a generality, joy in the second movie is such an incredible idea and those like scenes in the microfiche where she's like sitting inside of him and stuff are yep. again and then that, inside that, of Mackenzie that, Davis that's yeah. the franchise getting back to those sci-fi roots of doing something on film that I haven't seen before and in tw- in yeah when did that come out 2018 2017 in 2017 to do something that interesting in a sci-fi movie that you haven't mm-hmm. seen as an audience member is fucking incredible <laughs> And a few things, it's cool that in that movie was another example, you know, as recently as three, four years ago, you, I look at, I'm not positive how they did some of the stuff with, with joy or with the spinner. Like it's not, you watch Avengers and you kind of know what is going on here, but you watch Blade Runner 2049 and you're like, I think all of this might have been built or I think all of, I don't know if she was there, you know, there is some very Uh, interesting stuff in 2049. And I remember and thematic sort of mirroring of the first um i know we well let's get into how this started because if you can imagine this wasn't really that easy to make <laughs> sorry just jello injection yeah happening. are we almost done can i see the syringe yeah it's done <laughs> all right no that's not done the best thing about a jello filled syringe is it con- you constantly have like a percentage gauge of how much jello filled syringe you have right, so Blade Runner starts with Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, which he was just baked in is, the shower, right? Bitch, yeah, I, again. I, I dream about that last name, boy. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny about his last name? Oh, shit. That's his first name, bro. You can't just say that. <laughs> oh, shit. Damn, bro. Richard, Richard is into a corner. <laughs> I think that the Richard Dick thing is the sneakiest of nicknames. It's so stupid. It's like when James's can be Jim's. Yeah, that's all. That's stupid. a whole different thing. That's a different fucking name. Yeah, but is there a Jim so, to go with the gym? No. But, they're good. but it's not like there's like a Dickchard. There's also not like a Jamathon. <laughs> there's <laughs> none of these a month cool where things. You get James's discounted. Yeah, you, <laughs> Hyundai's Jamathon 2020. <laughs> um, so Philip K. Richards' significance. It only so we all know of him as like a major name in sci-fi. Um, in a lot of ways because like. He's one of the most adaptable novelists. Like a lot of adaptations of Philip K. Dick's books are considered, you know, some of the best sci-fi movies ever. Um, and all of them, I think people still have a knowledge that they are his original works. Well, I think pe- yeah, I Philip think it's K. Dick close to Asimov. mainstream knowledge that those are his movies. Yeah, and Isaac Asimov, who I think is again doesn't have that sort of cultural notoriety to a mainstream. I think moms know. Uh, that minority report is philip k dick yeah and like uh moms know that well and then and then there was that trend of just doing asimov after like nobody wanted to touch philip k dick with like irobot and bicentennial man and stuff yo irobot 
fucks. I didn't know Bicentennial Man was Asimov. Yo, both of those are interconnected stories. I've read their books. Does uh, Robin Williams follow the three laws? Yes. Yeah. It's actually in the beginning of Bicentennial Man. Like, the laws shoot up in the middle of the living room and the little uh, Pepsi girl's like, wow. A lot of that sentence blew me away. (laughs) What? (laughs) I really need to see Bicentennial Man for all those things. Bro, the Pepsi girl, Haley Eisenberg, Jesse Eisenberg's sister. Those are her three names. <laughs> yeah, those are her three names. The, the, the Pepsi girl, her on Haley the Eisenberg. Like, hey, Pepsi girl, Haley Eisenberg. How do you eat fried worms? I know you. Yo, you ever you ever stop <laughs> listening uh, to the conversation for like four seconds to look at the text, and then you come back and you're like, wait, was I not listening for an hour? <laughs> God damn it! What do you ever listen? So, so Philip K. Dick's significance only spread. Um, until after his death, uh, which came three months before the release of Blade Runner. And again, Blade Runner helped shoot that out too. Like, you know, any any artist is going to be, I think, a little more posthumously known. And then a couple months after his passing, Blade Runner is this huge divisive thing. And with any adaptation like that, you kind of want to go back and go like, what's in this book? What isn't? What did they keep? Um, so he just and has been sort of, you know, renowned ever since. Hmm. Um, in 1977, almost 10 years after the book, screenwriter Hampton Fancher optioned the screenplay, uh, sort of just on a whim, uh, and wrote it as more of like a trim, simple, like detectives chasing androids movie. Now, Hampton Fancher is a great D&D character name. It's also like an algorithm name. This is... This is another D&D episode where a lot of fun names are going to come into play here. Hampton Fancher sounds like somebody that, like, has a lead in this movie. Like, go talk to Fancher. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> yes. He sounds like a deleted scene from this movie. Yeah. Like, Hampton oh, Fancher yeah. owns, a, owns, a, owns a flower plantation. Yes. The theatrical edition <laughs> completely plantation. removes the Hampton Fancher sequences. Yeah. It's a plantation. <laughs> Uh, well, when as he started to slow down um, his work with Ridley Scott, because Ridley became so demanding, they started calling him Happen Faster, <laughs> <laughs> which is a good is, bit. <laughs> that's a fucking great bit. So they didn't just call him um, Fanch Dressing? I think Ridley, Ridley Scott in this... Uh, in this documentary I, I'm sourcing from called Dangerous Days, which is like a five-hour documentary on this movie, seems like the kind of guy who has nicknames for everyone after, like, they're done working together. Like, you know what I'm going to call him in stories? Happen faster. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, that makes him sound like uh, the making copies guy from SNL. Yes. <laughs> hey, happen faster. Making it go faster. <laughs> Now, Hampton's script uh, initially took place, like, mostly in rooms, like, just talking, like, a really small, stripped-down noir. I think, again, late 70s, no one can think, oh, well, I'll write a movie and it'll end up looking like how Blade Runner ended up looking. Right. Um, it was, it looks like Logan. were made I, like that. Yeah, at that point, he was it was making like a Logan movie. Run. No, you know, like, Logan's Well, run. yeah, I mean, but, but at that point, like, he was probably almost making a movie that, like, you could make, like, for TV or something like yeah, you know, like he at that time that was like the kind of movie you tried to make to get sold, you yeah. know. Yeah, because it's this like it's this nothing book that he optioned for a few thousand dollars from an author no one really knows in the year that Star Wars comes out. Yeah, who's gonna fucking die? Yeah, that dude's <laughs> gonna die pretty quick here. Um, so 
Fancher gained the interest of a producer named Michael Dealey, who brought it to Ridley Scott. Now, Ridley Scott initially turned it down. So, f- actually, first back up on Ridley Scott is that he made his first movie when he was in his like mid to late thirties. Um, he was he had mostly worked as a production designer, um, which comes into play a lot with this story in this movie, sure. um, and a commercial director. Also, like those two things, this makes this movie I think become a little more clear. Um, and his first film was The Duelists. His second was Alien. So it's one of those similar, it's kind of like George Lucas of like, you, he accidentally really quickly made masterpieces. Um, and he was obviously starting to develop big things. So he turns down Blade Runner because he is deep in his own development hell on an adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Ooh. Oh, he's trying to dune the damn thing, isn't he? He's trying to dune. Well, I mean, that there's something to be said for being stuck in another rabbit hole. So is this sort of a lifeline that gets him out of doing Dune, going into well, Blade Runner? Or is that kind sort of, of like his, like, if they won't let me dune the way I want to yeah. dune, I'll exactly. Blade Run the way I want to fucking Blade so, Run. So there are two elements here to come in, and I'm going to editorialize slightly because I don't want to tell, I don't want to create a narrative on someone's, you know, emotional story here, but I think that this kind of translates. There's two things. One, there's that. He wants, he wanted to make a faster paced production. He wanted to make something that he knew might happen. Mm -hmm. Maybe something that's a little more, um, you know, not in the desert and super dreary. (laughs) You know? Uh, But another thing to consider is that Ridley's older brother had just died of cancer. And he was apparently devastated i mean as you in a shocker but so he was at this point now in like the present time because his other brother like killed himself like seven tony years yeah ago. yeah uh, so it's like he's like the only scott left now huh i think so he's got a lot of, he's got sons i think tony has children a lot of the i think there are more scots to come but ridley is the first of that guard yeah and uh or the last of that guard and i think that and they posit in this documentary, I forget who, you know, the idea that his lack of control in that situation of losing his brother like that um, kind of created a monster creatively of someone who demanded control and demanded the creation of a completely different world, maybe as his own escapism, maybe as this or that. But I think he was trying to regain control and saw Blade Runner as, oh, I can make this movie and and have a bunch of meetings about umbrellas knowing that makes a lot of Deckard's like choices uh look a little different you know and like just uh you know like if he's uh, if he's kind of trying to make this movie to gain control of his life over like the thought of existence in his brother dying you know like the Deckard piano mm. scene of am i real does this matter really just sort of like rings a little harder you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah what what is in the book like what so is the book I the read book the book about <laughs> quite a while ago. The book is pretty close, I think, to this. Like we we might one of our forty listeners might have a real soft spot for uh, Philip K. Dick and could be wrong, but I read this in high school, like half read it. I read enough to write the report on it, mm-hmm. and I remember it kind of like how Fancher describes it, where it's a lot of rooms, it's a lot of talking and interviewing, and kind of like about a boring sad sack. And a lot of the themes in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is sort of of a more environmental 
leaning, uh, which is again what Fancher was more into. Uh, there's a huge thing about um, uh, people procuring fake animals and fake pets because it's illegal to have real animals, which is only referenced in this movie. But oh, interesting. That's a whole thing in Cyberpunk 2077. That yeah. Animals are illegal. And like huh. it's this huge fine. If you're, you could only like the super rich can have dogs. It's like $10,000 a week to own a dog. And, and in there's like a cat they run into that you run into in the storyline. It's like a huge deal because you see a cat. And in, so in Blade Runner, you have Rachel saying um, that she would kill an animal or she would report an animal, report someone for owning an animal. Uh, a lot of the Voight comp test is about morality towards living animals. Um, and then in Blade Runner 2049, there's, I think, the best part of the movie, the, be- the most important sort of exchange in the movie where Kay asks Deckard uh, if the dog that he's with is real. Deckard says, why don't you ask him? So those are the only remnants of what is a huge theme in the novel. Um, But obviously once Ridley gets to it and then brings in David Peoples, he brings it more to a movie about sort of, as I say, everything that's about more like spirituality and existence and religion and like life and our relationship with death. And, uh, but initially it's about like, we are destroying this world and we are destroying humanity. So it's <laughs> pretty much all um, sci-fi at that time is really about like yeah. uh, Bicentennial Man uh, was really about uh, a robot living through humans destroying the earth and mm. uh, like to the point where it's also he lived through the iRobot incident and about how robots are now only banished onto the moon because of the iRobot incident. And uh, it's like he lives through like what would be like the future. And like that book was more of a blueprint of what Asimov thought 200 years would look like, you know, wild, Hmm. wild thought that like having all of the killer robots on the moon isn't a thousand times scarier. (laughs) (laughs) Like just looking up at the moon and being like, cool. So I know there's literally thousands of murderous robots up there. Similar to like. Cool. Blade Runner where like yeah all the replicants are off world like I- I'm not into that can we have them here <laughs> yeah there's all like okay and I know it kind of destroys the the thing of like then you can't have a movie about a guy hunting them down but should mm-hmm. there just be an off switch for the replicants like should they sure. be able to just turn them off <laughs> I think that there's something being played with like, yeah I know it's it's definitely I think the, the in movie answer to that is like Tyrell's Tyrell having a god complex, which I think Leto so correctly does it in 2049 of like these in it. You see it in in today of like, you know, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or or any of these people who like, I think I am the answer to the obvious. Like, I think I can do the thing. I think maybe I'm going to try to make life. It's going to have my off switch, like a proprietary off switch that is a four year lifespan. Um, my guess is that also early replicants do, but the Nexus sixes don't. Sure, sure, that makes sense. Um, which is their whole—that's the whole selling point of like these guys just die. You don't have to turn them off. Yeah, they're just disposable. <laughs> um, <laughs> they won't come. They won't suddenly realize they're gonna die and come back and explode your head. <laughs> um, so the film was initially uh, financed with Ridley on board uh, by a company called Filmways for 15 million dollars um i looked into filmways as 
No, 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 no. <laughs> if I, have we ever made a movie where, like, <sighs> have we ever That's made like a, a movie where, like, the, the budget was, and they were happy with it, and they didn't even spend all of it? <laughs> well, they had Ridley, six million left could, over. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Ridley does things pretty on budget, doesn't he? Or yes, I he, of this else? is a rare instance of him really balloon. I think it, this is sort of where he learns that lesson. Sure, sure. Uh, even From in Danger State. He's a pretty, uh, you know, he's, he's a very um, frugal director with a tiny yeah. face. Well, and he, for uh, sure. Because he actually <laughs> figures out how much to ask for, like, up front, you know? Tiny yeah. face with a big cigar in his mouth. Tiny yeah. face, big cigar, and a balanced checkbook. <laughs> yeah. He he's does, like one of the directors. We can't that talk could... about how tiny this motherfucker's face is. <laughs> With like, but his brother Tony had like Michelin man face. Yeah, <laughs> I've uh, never seen Tony. God rest his Michelin soul. R.I.P. Um. Oh yeah, no. Tony Scott looks dope. No. Uh. uh Tony Scott was so tiny. Fifteen million dollars what they initially can get for the movie. Um, and at this point, we should bring up a few like kind of big bullet points that I'll scatter within. The title of the movie is obviously not Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, probably that, solid That move. is sort of a very um, pretentious literary. title and very literary. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like a sentence you say to uh, like check the mic. Right. It, it, it sounds like something yeah. people... <laughs> no, it sounds like a vocal exercise. <laughs> it sounds like, like that Ron code, Burgundy would say. Uh, the code in Tenet electric that the CIA yeah. agents use to activate each other. Yeah. Like, do androids <laughs> dream of electric sheep? Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> like tears in rain. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, yeah, in the narration. I don't know why androids dream of electric sheep. <laughs> <laughs> but if you ask me, they should go back to bed hundred <laughs> like percent when we'll get to it for sure i don't think this week uh that narration sounds like that the entire time it's wild um so the title was changed to something way less pretentious dangerous days which is just as bad but different yeah i um, mean I don't know if it's better or worse than Blade Runner. I was thinking a lot about the the word Blade Runner and how it becomes things become not dumb sounding the more you hear them. I think that all the time that someone had to say Death Star first. Right. Right. Or like how how fucking (laughs) the first time I saw a trailer for The Revenant, I was like, what a stupid name for a movie. Mm -hmm. That's a word nobody uses and will no one will remember. But now that's The Revenant. It's a church word. Right. And so it's like I I, it is or even Mandalorian when you were like Mm -hmm. you were like, oh, it kind of sucks. That's what they have to call that show. (laughs) Well, and, and even so this this is a similar note. So they eventually call the movie Blade Runner based on the, a novel, the title of a novel by William S. Burroughs that has basically nothing to do with it. It was one of those just Ridley thought it was cool. Blade Runner is never mentioned in Philip K. Dick's book. Um, and this is similar to notes that Ridley would give all the time, which were to sort of remove any sci-fi tropes or, or cliches, uh, including... You know, the word android is not said in the movie. Well, that's um, mm-hmm. it, that's interesting because, like, 
when people were writing sci-fi at that time, it was more of like a mad dash in sci-fi mags and stuff. It was you got paid per word, so people just like churn out things. So you had this overflow yeah. of just like trope-heavy sci-fi bullshit. And so it was really good that he was combing through to make sure that stuff wasn't there, you know? Because otherwise you would have ended up think- with a TV version like a Logan's Run or like Fahrenheit 451, you know? And effectively making the new cliche of sci-fi to be cool and different and edgy, mm-hmm. like making sci-fi in the 80s awesome. Because back then it was like uh, the movies where everyone was in silver jumpsuits and like talked yeah. in a monotone and it was just like this weird like haze. It looked nothing like what was out the window. Yeah, this was the new future, you know. Um so, yeah, Ridley in- insisted on calling androids replicants, despite that name ag- kind of implying they are more clones than uh, than androids. But again, he just didn't want the word androids. Moving on. In the book, they're androids, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Replicant so they're not called Blade replicant. Blade Runner and replicants were invented for this movie. That's so interesting because it, it almost feels like. Like, if you didn't tell me any of that, I would almost assume Blade Runner was an added thing, but I would assume Replicant was, like, source material. You know, like, the Replicant yeah. feels so entrenched in what this property is at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, at this point, massive amounts of artwork is being commissioned, not necessarily by final uh, consultants or designers, but just trying to get the world figured out. Ridley is becoming obsessed with creating the world. Um, and after, But after having invested $2.5 million into the production, Filmways withdraws the backing. Now, I can't figure out exactly why, but it seems like Ridley's being crazy. They've spent so much money without actually making a movie. It seems well, like it's pretty they've, obvious. They've spent $2 million and all just he has home. is a bunch of drawings. Right. Where like... at this point... <laughs> You know, you Guardians know. of the Galaxy spends five million just on the drawings before you know, like right, right. Yeah, they put it back down. Now, now it's like you realized how important the fucking drawings were because they got to figure out what the fuck they're doing. But yeah. I get, I get it. Where you're like, okay, we got this dude. You know, he's done these incredible movies, but it's like, buddy, are you still just? You're still sketching what the alleys look like. <laughs> you're still, oh, you yeah, know, like get I get in, it. Let's get into it. So he. um the film is nearing production. They were about to start shooting. Sets are still being built, even though there's really no money anymore. And there's a lot of like, do we even have a movie? There was basically 14 days to get money coming back in, like getting get payroll coming back in. And uh, producer Dealey, uh, Michael Dealey, eventually secures 21 and a half million through the Lad Company, uh, hey. which is through Warner Brothers. Um uh, Hong Kong-based producer Sir Run Run Shaw uh, and Tandem Productions. Basically, just, Sir, he literally went out and financed it at that point like an indie film of like, who will give us money? Just like we'll kind of no questions these, asked. Like, but X amount of rights and that sort of thing. Like, just, Well, because yeah, Ridley yeah. is... Which also, like, again, that comes back into play later. Ridley does have this like interesting duality as a director where he sort of has this like... Even though he's made these juggernaut Hollywood major mm. productions, he kind of has this like indie scrappy mindset still, right? Like mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of these guys don't. And and it, it's always intriguing to me of how he'll be like, you know, the crews he uses or the, the corners that not the corners he cuts, but like the, the tricks he tries to use, you know what I mean? In his, in his yeah. tool belt. I mean, you think about like he reminds me a lot of Edgar Wright. 
or I guess Edgar Wright reminds me of him, yeah. where it's not necessarily that they're making huge, expensive movies. It's just that their movies look t- like they had twice the budget, no matter what. That's because you're seeing all the budget on the screen, as opposed to like something else where it's like all that budget is. They're directors right. that know how to use the money they're, they're getting mm-hmm. for sure. You know. Well, and Ridley has sort of a history of like pretty baller post like production saves, like Gladiator of like recreating a performance from a dead person, or all the money in the world where it's like the movie comes out this month. Let's go back and replace our star. With uh, somebody who should have been there in the first place, you know? Yeah. I hit a, I hit a certain point where I was like, should this have been two parts? And then I, like, finished this episode. I'm like, this had to be two parts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, god damn it. All right, well. <coughs> R- Richard is just... <laughs> Procured a second syringe, so I can't. We I can't have to take ask. The, the, there is see, and here's and here's the movie, right in a nutshell. Where you're just now, we're adding sci-fi elements. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, here's my question now. At the first, I was like, oh, he bought that thing, and it's funny. And now I'm like, is that the last one that you own, or do you have a lot of these? Because that's a different color, which implies, like, maybe you got a variety pack. Uh, this is the last of the variety of pack, actually. It was, like, four for 20. <laughs> and two yesterday. Four for 20. It's not bad. Four for 20, baby. Please. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that is the future version of 420, is a guy <laughs> post- <laughs> podcasting with a syringe full of jello shot. <laughs> 420 shoot it that's, that's hey, the wait, future philip k dick was too much of a philip k pussy to write about <laughs> imagine this with if philip k dick though. were alive today he'd be writing about jello shot syringes uh, <sighs> um so ridley starts asking hampton fancher um and about so this is about the point where he is now happen faster. Like they are not getting on with each sure, other. Sure, um, fast bender. Uh, about and he's was still quote, the writer, right? Hampton Fancher. Hampton Fancher is even credited on twenty forty nine. What because of characters created? Um, uh, well, we'll get into that. So Ridley is starting to ask him about quote what is outside the window, and not necessarily asking. F- him about like well let's take some scenes outside he's more trying to understand if fancher has an idea of where this movie happens because obviously you watch this movie and it's a movie obsessed with its own locations its own sort of place um and ridley starts to have really obsessive thoughts about the world and the world needing to support his thesis which is slowly starting to form um and fancher's script was still so based in rooms um, so as he is getting exhausted uh, by Ridley, who is just shooting out random ideas nonstop, most of which are seeming really peripheral, he's not asking like, oh, what's Deckard thinking here? It's more like, what do you think his couch should be shaped like? And it's like, this is not the screenwriting meetings you're supposed to be having. Which, think uh, about think about that as a screenwriter, though. How fucking mm-hmm. annoying that would be. Yeah. Where like, it's how like, important it was to this movie, but how deeply annoying. How <laughs> does like, I don't his know, furniture not, affect how he orders noodles? <laughs> right, right. I just, I'm, we're just trying to figure out if he should ask for two or three. Um, 
So he's eventually replaced with David Peoples, who it seems um, I wasn't able to look into him either. It seems was like brought in in the way you bring in like Shane Black now of like, I want you to give this like some muscle and some like grit, um, uh, you know. And so when he first got it, he had he thought there was nothing wrong with the script, too. He was like, I don't know really what I can do with you. And apparently Ridley Scott just laughed at him. Uh, I think sort of maniacally in a so, sort of like, I'm going to fuck up your life. Big laugh from this tiny little face. Like Again, with the, with like the, like the, ah, the big cigar ah, in his teeth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one uh, story meeting with David Peoples was apparently derailed when Ridley went on for, according to Peoples, hours talking about a walking mouse dressed as Napoleon. <laughs> uh, which, of course, is in the movie for a fat 20 seconds. <laughs> I, this is... I am constantly obsessed with big, important writing meetings that go so astray from the idea that something completely different, like there's... Uh, oh, yeah, I love that so I, I, much. My here's again. I think this might be how Ridley Scott grieves, <laughs> where he's just he like coming in and he's like, Napoleon? "I know we're supposed to talk about the love scene with Rachel, but I'm just have this image about a mouse." And it's like, no matter how much he discusses that with this guy, the screenplay will still only have one sentence about a mouse. <laughs> right. Right. Um. And so now we're getting out. Now this let's so the script Wait, is. Are we really done talking about Mouse Napoleon? No. Go well, the fuck back. what did you guys think? You we'll know, do you a whole are... part of this podcast about Mouse Napoleon if we fucking have to, Spike. You, you guys, censor us. You guys are newer to this uh, to, to sort of digging into Blade Runner. What was your guys' read on the significance of Mouse Napoleon? <laughs> Mouse Napoleon is mildly this movie telling you to go fuck yourself if you're not in at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, the Mouse Napoleon is like this movie looking you in the eye and being like, you're in too deep now, kid. No way right. out. Mouse like- Napoleon is, shows up in a scene where the villain is checking into a derelict slum house with, like, a designer. <laughs> the- yeah. Like, it's not like it's a weird part of that scene, everything's upsetting, and then suddenly there's Mouse Napoleon. Yeah, Mouse Napoleon. <laughs> he walks in like he's the chillest person in the scene. Mouse oh, yeah. They walk in it's like the... they were just smoking a fat blunt in the other room. They look hella <laughs> lifted. My men's look fucking lifted. <laughs> Mouse Napoleon is the equivalent of when Willy Wonka starts doing that random poem in the middle of the waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want eighty percent more of this movie to have Mouse Napoleon just chilling in scenes. Like I want Mouse Napoleon to end up Deckard's sidekick, completely removed from twenty forty nine. I mean, uh, and and a furious me in the theater. I feel like the the uh, hologram Elvis could have been hologram Mouse Napoleon. Please. I wanted a shot where they show a young Jared Leto and he's just Mouse Napoleon. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Um, oh, interesting 2049 before we leave the sort of screenwriting phase. In this documentary, they show, because there was concept art written and drawn and storyboards for everything in this movie, the 
um, there are storyboards that go with all these abandoned scenes written by Peoples and Fancher. Um, Hamden Fancher described his original opening for Blade Runner as a the our titular Blade Runner who is not you know the movie is not visibly sci-fi just yet going into a small like lone house shadowy water is boiling on the stove and the Blade Runner sits in a corner in the shade eventually a very large like jacked farmer in like a hazmat suit comes into the house notices the Blade Runner but continues moving to the stove and just stirs the water you know pours himself his water his tea eventually he turns to the Blade Runner they have a discussion they have a fight the Blade Runner shoots the farmer and before he leaves so at this point it is the Dave Bautista scene in 2049 have you ever witnessed Um, a miracle what is in these storyboards, and it is the coolest looking storyboard, like Just standing thing ever. over Batista's dead body is fucking Napoleon. Yeah. <laughs> Napoleon mounts. What Being is like, in. I am a Blade Runner. I'm a Blade Obviously, Runner. That's <laughs> what I do. Oh, the replicas. I see it in your eye, you are a replicant. How did we get this far without the accent? <laughs> Oh, replicant, human nepa, human nepa. Ah, you know, you are replicant, you are Dave Bautista. Le replicant. Um... So the only difference in the scene is how it ends, which in 2049, they go with this idea that you identify replicants by their like serial numbers on their eyes, Mm -hmm. uh, which Ryan Gosling does in 2049. But in Fancher's original script, um, it's much more like, had they shot this, holy shit, can you imagine Harrison Ford doing this in an 80s movie? He reaches into the dead replicant's jaw, mouth, and rips out the jawbone. Uh, which is connected to circuits and wires and, you know, spark plugs and all that, and finds the identification number behind the jawbone. <laughs> so which is if, like... If they are wrong about it being a replicate, you did oh, rip off someone's fucking intense. jaw. Oh, yeah. There's <laughs> a lot cool. of, like... I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> it seems like the kind of thing where, like, a last-ditch... You know, Ridley is like, make it grittier or else I'm going to hire David Peoples. And he's like, all right, he rips out his jawbone. Are you happy? And, and he's then like, everyone's quiet. Like, oh, no, uh, man. You need to take a fucking nap. Why don't you go home and not, wait for the call? There's probably just not an identification system in the books, right? Like, that's probably just not no. necessary. No, there's no jaw ripping in the books. There's no, like... <laughs> Nobody roundhouse no, kicks dude, the jaw. No, off the book person. is about Deckard. Like, I really think I should get me a fake turtle. Should I get a fake turtle? I'm not even joking. It ends with him like, so I got me that turtle. Oh boy, this is how the this is how I read. Apparently, you know, like a miserly yeah, old no, man read the audio book. That's the voice to read Deckard in for sure. Is like Harrison Ford just woken up yeah, now. Android so get in a sheep. I was wondering the other day about androids when they sleep 
What kind of sheep do they dream about? Do you think Do you think his ears stick through the little Napoleon hat, or do you think yeah. they lay under the little Napoleon hat? <laughs> what, uh, what if you booted up the audiobook and it was just like, oh, chapter one, it is me, Rick Deckard. Do androids dream of a little sheep? It's Napoleon doing the the voiceover. <laughs> so, so I'm a Blade Runner, and this here, this is Los Angeles. <laughs> That's me. That's the, the only Avengers. time you'll see me. But I am very, very important. All I do is I am the one who tells this story. <laughs> I remember on set, the director said, "You are a big part of this film," <laughs> and I felt so empowered by that direction. I love how Puerto Rican your French accent is. The food gets. was great that day. <laughs> yeah, you're very Caribbean. <laughs> Yours is very... Well, if he had sounded more like Bill the Butcher, we could make this <laughs> fucking happen. I've got a little hat on. I can't do Bill the Butcher. You're saying that the film is called Dangerous Days? I'm not into that. <laughs> is an android stream of electric sheep? <laughs> that was the finest fake turtle I ever took. <laughs> Draped in a holographic American. Yeah, it's flickering, flag. like glitching yeah. in and out. <laughs> it like flashes to the China sweaty. flag every once in a while. Um, uh. So, uh, industrial designer Sid Mead was brought in initially for a few days, but eventually through the whole production. Um, as a futurist concept designer, um, he was mostly brought in to design a few of the vehicles, but with his background as a painter, he didn't know how to draw like just like a thing on white. So he inherently wanted to just he just drew the cars that he was meant to design, but he drew these backgrounds and his idea because he was an industrial designer, he tr basically drew the cities like one would draw a car like he drew these like giant brutalist like neon signs metals and steel like he drew what eventually became like ridley's favorite shit in the world is like you are my guy i want you drawing fucking mugs i want you drawing yeah. <laughs> you know the rugs i want you drawing everything so all the guys is just like the uh, hr guy mugs rugs bugs. Yeah, i guess I, <laughs> <laughs> I was like maybe don't say it and they didn't hear it <laughs> I want you designing the pugs, the mugs. <laughs> We're gonna have some dogs. Maybe you can design some pugs. He, he's like, he's like, dude, dude. I love your drawings. When I say two words to you, Napoleon Mouse, what do you think? <laughs> Could we call him Doug? Then I'll the guy, draw him. The guy starts drawing it, and, and Ridley's like, "No, oh, that's it. That's fucking it, dude." Hey, you want to you see me draw some chugs? <laughs> It's one of those things like Napoleon Mouse is like there's no second way to envision it. No, he really like the, what's in the movie is a first draft Napoleon Mouse. I am the one and only. That was the one time he was just like that was the one time the whole production where Ridley was like, no, that's good. Let's move on. We've, we've talked about Napoleon Mouse so much. I can't remember what the other thing is now, but I know there's another little motherfucker standing there. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, but with Napoleon yeah, it's Mouse, John Will the Booth show. Snake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, 
And so Sid was brought on as basically a right-hand man for Ridley, like, throughout the entire design process. Um, because Ridley gets into the idea of, like, we are creating what the future will be. And in certain ways, the movie nails, like, where Asia eventually ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it also inherently does is it does start this in the way that we're talking about how this movie starts a lot of things it does start this trend of sort of appropriating asian culture into anything that's like sci-fi yeah without ever bothering to cast anyone who isn't white yeah um it's a it's i think culminating kind of in ghost in the shell yeah um and it's sort of like we're uh, like white guys who had that argument when because when Ghost in the Shell came out, I was very vocal about how much that sucked. Uh, but like white guys on yeah. the internet were like, "Oh yeah, well like Blade Runner has all that Afro has all that like uh, Japanese futurism. Who cares?" And I'm like, "Well, I didn't like it then either." <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> like if you're right. gonna like, it's also not a good part of those movies, right? Like. Uh, Blade Runner is really representative of what it would be like to whitewash the ideals of like 100% of other cultures, you know, and like what it would be like as an amalgam of one thing in L.A. If what if all of future L.A. was just Chinatown, but white people live there? Yeah, only exclusively, seemingly. Yeah, like if yeah. you got gentrified, so this movie takes like, place. Like this is what gentrification this... looked like, you know. And this movie takes place in 2019. So, Kyle, how much does it get right about where Los Angeles ended up? Well, I'll say this much. Um, I don't know if masks. I've Googled a picture, and uh, Napoleon Mouse has been a bear this whole time, you guys. <laughs> oh, no. Just... He got talked into bear? <laughs> He's absolutely a bear. This He's Napoleon bear. Time. So that was, that was, pe- that must have been people's contribution. <laughs> yeah. Was got like, gritted, I guess what if it's a bear? bear? Well, in, the, in the job interview, uh, so um, listen, David, I'm going to give you Napoleon Mouse. What do you do? He's like, you know what I do with that? And he just goes, Napoleon Bear. He puts out the cigar, lights a third, like like three more. <laughs> three more. You know cigars. what? Just that was really cool. What you just said about that Napoleon Mouse. I mean, <laughs> hey, they got the smog right for 2019. That's pretty. That's pretty. Which on, again, on like a more of a that is that smog is an example of Ridley, like you say, being sort of smart and resourceful and making shit happen. Because uh, yeah. the smog is not necessarily like. It's less a creative and more a resort, like a, a, a practical decision for him. Sure, because you have to render less of the of the image if it gets exactly. in the distance. And uh, so, and we're getting, think, really got uh, the Mojave Desert Sandy. accurate to twenty twenty. I'm gonna I'm make a note. <laughs> you know what's fucked up is that Napoleon was a bear this whole time. You I'm underestimated pretty, my I'm, size, you motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I don't understand is the creepy guy that's next to him because he just has a weird little long nose, and you know, he's not—he's not really anything. He's like you know maybe a little Nazi. Napoleon. Here's the problem: Napoleon Mouse is definitely the video we have to make, but we're gonna sound like fucking idiots. Yeah, that's why <laughs> we it's have going to, to be over video of a visible bear. bear. It's bear. It's a bear. It's it's like, you underestimated his size. But I do oh, yeah. like I do like the term Napoleon Mouse. Napoleon Mouse much better than Napoleon Bear. Napoleon Mouse might be my new gamer tag. But Napole but Napoleon Bear Napart does have a better pun value. <laughs> you think that was higher, the higher pun rating? That was also people's in the job interview. <laughs> like, cause then now we have a name. 
Yeah, uh, he wasn't used to uh, just uh, drawing bears on white sheets. He also had to put like a graffiti name on the back of it. (laughs) He wasn't used (laughs) to just drawing bears. He had to also draw a historical military uniform. (laughs) Those are two characters, Kaiser and Bear. (laughs) So Napoleon Bear is just called Bear. This is getting fucking dumber. Yeah, he's just named Bear. Uh, really, really flaked on Napoleon Mouse. <laughs> this is, I found a, there's a uh, a thread on the Blade Runner subreddit called Few Questions About Kaiser and the Bear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are our questions? Yeah. Uh, are those toys actually synthetic, conscious, thinking beings with human needs like Roy Batty? Or did JF program them to act out roles as toys slash entertainers slash friends? Well, I think JF Sebastian is such a like, it's such interesting casting and makeup on him and everything like one of the most instantly tragic looking people ever that you're like, I feel like this guy creates his own toy friends. <laughs> sure. Um, and he's got that other kind of cat. It's that other piece of casting where like you see him and you're like, this guy is not going to have a fun time. This movie. Guys, donate to our Patreon for $300. We can get a tiny replicas of Kaiser and Bear. Seemingly the only Kaiser and Bear merchandise. Please do. Cash at me. I'll buy it. Hell yeah. So, and we'll we'll find a way to turn it into a mouse like it should be. Like Ridley Scott's. See, that's the final cut that we need. Yeah. Is we need one more cut where Ridley makes that the mouse he wanted. The mouse cut. (laughs) It's release only, it only is available in France. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag release Le Um so Mouse Cut Tears. And so here's there's gonna be examples of like things that are like why you know, this this podcast always brings up the question, was it worth it? There are a lot of was it worth it's here. Sid Mead apparently completely um imagined and created parking meters for Ridley Scott. Now, Ridley looks at them and goes, great, these kind of look like weird parking meters. And Sid explains, well, no, these are parking meters that have special technology, and that's what I've built here with these buttons and cables, that should someone tamper with them or try to get out of their tickets, it will kill the person who is trying to tamper with it. Now, this is the kind of thing that, of course, Harrison Ford never knew about. (laughs) <laughs> that like this conversation never left Sid Mead and Ridley Scott. <laughs> right. But occasionally he would mention, well, you know, those actually are pretty cool. They kill people. It's like, no, those are wood. This is a movie. That's a prop. Yeah. Yeah. That's all fake. It's, buddy. it's literally the, the highest budget version of two little kids on the playground being like, well, my secret firepower can actually melt your secret ice power. Yeah. And I'm going, well, but I actually have a secret anti-fire shield. Like yep. <laughs> it's like little kids just playing pretend at the highest level with, with millions of dollars yeah, with millions. And then, 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 but then like Harrison Ford is also part of it. Um, so when Ridley meets his art director, Lawrence G. Paul, he instantly apologized uh, uh, for what he knew he was about to put him through. Um, Jesus Christ. Uh, and in the documentary, it says, with the Macanudo cigar in his mouth. <laughs> um, uh, Ridley, according to Dealey, r- ran the art department. Um, 
again, he was initially a production designer before his first film, and he had a very technically based mindset for Blade Runner. Whereas you hear stories about him now, and uh, he's apparently very protective of actors and performance. I think a lot of his movies, you look at things like The Martian, which for all of its um, sort of extravagant visuals is very much about like one dude acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you watch Blade Runner and I it, it does seem like he has limited patience for <laughs> his actors over his flying cars. Um, yeah, well, and- I mean, I think when you've spent <clears throat> three weeks approving and doing all the concept art for fucking a scene where three cars pull up and somebody gets out of it and walks into a building. Yeah. Which in a thing set in New York city takes almost no set design. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Very limited, but like in the, the, the universe he's created, like when, when you have to have that conversation for so long, do you really give a shit how Harrison Ford <laughs> looks when he walks through it? You're just like so stoked that the rest of it looks right. You sure. know what I mean? He's like, wow, we really figured out how to make sidewalks unique. You yeah. Know? Like, <laughs> instead of, like, giving a shit about the the performance necessarily. Uh, and again, in a movie that miraculously does have incredible Great performances because yeah. it has incredible actors in it. You know, like Rutger Hauer and Harrison Ford were going to show up regardless. Um, but if you're, if you're comparing these two Blade Runner movies, it seems like the actors were talked to a little more for 2049. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Ridley would sketch out tons of his like kind of you know spur of the moment ideas uh, and the set the crew dubbed them Ridley Grams because they were very very crude Uh, so it was like very clear like when everyone would get passed around they'd be like oh this is something out of fucking Ridley god damn it Um, I call Ridley Grams whenever I see people with really small faces on Insta Hit us up, hashtag Ridley Grams. Um, Show us your best Ridley Grams to people. What's that? Oh, I just said comment that on some people's pictures. Yeah, please do it. You think there's an Instagram that's like Ridley Scott with a blue blue check mark? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like one picture from 2014 with his kids. Like he never, like they set it up for him on Thanksgiving. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the man's 83. Um, no, he isn't. Is he really? He's seemingly ageless to me. Isn't he sort of like I just weirdly... looked him up, but I've been shocked. He's been like 60 for 30 years. Yeah. The fact that you said he was 30-something, 30 35 when he made his first movie only mind-fucked me even more. Because he's seemingly been an old man forever. Yeah, and he, you know, to speak on, like, I think he's a great example of, like, it's really easy to get into that rhythm of, like, Oh man, Paul Thomas Anderson made Boogie Nights when he was 25 or um you know, Martin Scorsese was making masterpieces like right out of NYU and it's like Ridley Scott is evidence that just like it's you're ne- there's no prime uh yeah. in it's not sports. Well, it's- there's no predictability, there's no back nine. Like Ridley Scott, if he makes if he announces a movie, you're like it might be incredible. He still has that potential in him. The thing is, though, it's like Martin Scorsese is like a film savant. It's like the only language he really understands is film. So, of course, he popped off early. And the thing that creatives build themselves up in their head is that they need to, like, uh, get famous or, like, make their big art the same way somebody who only understands that medium needs to do it, you know? And not, like, maybe things have their own pace. 
Yeah, Ridley Scott was 40 when he made uh, Alien. That fucks. That fucks pretty hard. But I mean, a lot of like, even like a lot of the Pixar people, a lot of showrunners, they don't get those yep. opportunities until you're older. You know what I mean? Like, because a lot of those positions are, even if you're immensely talented, you know, even if you're, you know, you come in with like, you get a fucking hot ass short film, you have a hot script, you know, the, the Lena Dunham way in, you know what I mean? Like you come in like mm-hmm. that, it's like, well, you still can't be a showrunner because like that takes the knowledge of running like yeah. a small corporation. Yeah. I, I still think know, it's, like, it's pretty impressive that Damien Chazelle has yet to hit sort of a red light, which I mean, I'm not saying like, mm-hmm. fuck him. It's like you rarely see someone show up with something great right away, but then continue to, to do okay. Like, it's not like first man was like, oh man, this guy's untouchable, fucking right, bulletproof. Right, right. But like, but he's right solid. back to making some movie with Brad Pitt and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, knowing that they didn't have the money to create an entire city uh, from scratch, the production employed a technique. Uh, <laughs> Not that John DeBont money. That's been, yeah. That's often <laughs> been used since called retrofitting. Uh, where they began with what was the New York Street backlot at Warner Brothers, like basically where they shoot like sitcom New York, like bad fake city streets. From, yes. And they built attachments to everything. And this huge, massive set was called Ridleyville. So you've got Ridley Grams, you've got Ridleyville, which I think like makes you realize that this is he was, again, one of those directors that just had a reputation among the crew. Like, this was his show, this was his thing. If, like, you had an idea about how it should sound, it needs to go through him. Uh, and so the set for L.A. was Ridleyville. Yeah. I wonder if that is because he worked on set sort of in that right. mid-level position where it's like a lot of shit flies up at you, but you don't have the authority to actually do anything with it all Mm -hmm. and i wonder somebody who's this much of a control freak as he is in these ways i wonder if that's just infuriating as a part of that job to have to watch somebody in your mind at least blunder yeah and going you know going through uh sort of the the sort of crisis of control in his emotional life Mm -hmm. that of course he shows up to set and is like i can't i'm not going to let you decide what color this fucking wall is (laughs) <laughs> yeah i because you see you see these schematics of this stuff and it's crazy that, like because none of it is a location there was like you know we talk about meetings about umbrellas there are meetings about like all right so there's going to be the couch store and then the chinese restaurant and then the the watch the jewelry you know the jeweler and then there's going to be like he had to create he had to be a city planner for like three city blocks right right um and still also go like, and I'm going to put my camera here. We're going to put these cars here. Um, so this, uh, another reason that all of this was able to happen um, was because of an actor strike uh, that was going on in 1980 um, and was going on for a while. So this allowed for nine and a half months of pre-production, which is sort of unheard of. Um Especially because, like, all of that was spent because Ridley's so manic. All of those are spent getting things done. Well, that's like it's not like he was like, I need three months to think about it. He was like, I have ideas. He's very clear in this documentary. You need to have your answer. You need to have your ideas. So he was never like, let me go think about it. Do you think that's kind of happening now with like how much 
people can put something in a pressure cooker now with like COVID. Like, well, we can't really do a lot of like actual production, but we can have these guys like working on a bunch of pre stuff. It might be now. You know? I know it was the opposite was happening before then because you would have you have me and it. The problem now is that you they that these studios are planting flags in release dates um, before there's a screenplay. Sometimes before there's a director. And I think, and so it's like, what's that? Disney you know, they slate? have to chase a release date. Was that like Disney slate? Sort of like that sort of thing happening, or it was like a lot of those Star Wars things weren't planned pre-COVID. You know, and guys, those a lot of that's not happening, right? That's dude. I feel like yeah. at least out of those ten shows, at least four of them don't get released, right? Yeah, like yeah. I th- in the Marvel stuff too. You oh. think they're gonna make a War Machine show? Dude, I saw that and I was like, "Sun News." Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> um, I love Marvel and Sun News. <laughs> I think what will happen is, uh, well, obviously, Star Wars: The Bad Batch is happening. They already have a trailer. The Patty Jenkins movie is happening because Bad been, Batch looks dope. Bad Batch looks tight. Rogue Squadron's happening because that's been in pre-production for over a year now. Um, but all the other stuff I can't speak to. Obviously, Obi One's happening. But I don't think a lot of the other stuff is. See, really... Obi Wan feels shaky to me. Obi Wan feels shaky. I, e- like Ewan McGregor and e- and Hayden Christensen. I know they have sort of Star Wars like carte blanche, but there's like that isn't an instant yes until they're on day one. Yeah, but it's like Obi Wan. Obi Wan was having its own dev, uh, dev hell before like even Rise of Skywalker came out. Like it was. I know. One I know. Of the ones on the they table. were always saying. The the rumor was always they were going to make a Boba Fett, an Obi Wan, yep. and a Yoda. And Boba Fett's like and was Josh movies. Trank going to make Boba Fett? Yes. Yeah, that guy is really cool. Josh Trank, not Boba yeah, Fett. I like <laughs> no, Josh I don't Trank. actually like Boba. They're both Fett pretty much, cool. Josh Trank is uh, all right. Yeah, I think I'd, the Josh I'd like to have the a stuff, beer with both. The fi- yeah, at the same time, <laughs> uh, the the. Fantastic Four parts that you know Josh Trank directed are very good. Yeah, I would. That is a hashtag release the Trank cut. Oh, man, that'll that never come. Should be screaming for because it's never going to happen. If that ever in like twenty years, if that ever makes its way onto the internet, I would love to see. Dude, if people liked the cut. Capone poops his pants movie, there would definitely be a hashtag release the Trank cut. Hey, but Capone no one liked poops. the Capone poops his pants movie. I like that movie, and it's only just because Capone pooped his pants. What is your favorite scene in that movie where Capone poops his pants it's in front of a bunch of his? I like friends. when it's when the little Napoleon mouse comes out. <laughs> and he's like, oh, <laughs> Napoleon he's bear. He had shit in his pants. Napoleon bear apart. He has completely a, shit his pants. alone. <laughs> this man looks like he has a third in his dock ears. <laughs> <laughs> this man used to do bad things. I can't do the accent. Here's <laughs> really quickly becomes like Spanish pirate. <laughs> Hola, chica. You poop your pants? You are on the road to El Dorado. <laughs> That's what Spikes becomes. <laughs> it's the... Fuck. Yeah, you happen. become a conquistador. Yeah, yes. you go from French to conquistador. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Um... So to accommodate the sitcom look of this like set uh, and the limited height of the buildings, because backlot buildings typically only go like two stories, um, Ridley chose to film 
any exterior scenes at night in the rain and covered in smoke and fog. Oh, Which, of course, successfully makes this movie Blade Runner. And that's exactly the idea, like the textural memory that we have of Blade Runner. And it, it's why, and it like, makes the city almost infinite. Yeah. It makes and all it makes the sets it almost feel infinite. more crowded. It makes it feel more noisy. Uh, and it makes, you know, the characters feel kind of more put upon. And, like, it's like, it just feels like, it feels like a city. It feels, there's nothing set about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so here are a couple little elements that are going into the, the development and the prep of this movie. Gene Winfield, the car fabricator says that from scratch, they built 28 cars from three shops with 50 people working 18 hours a day, seven days a week for five and a half months. Whew. Oh my God. What is that? That's the Amazon <laughs> schedule. Don't do, don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know. Um, another designer was told to design two neon signs a day for a month. <laughs> but production still borrowed neon signs and lights from any Warner production that didn't need them on the day. Oh my God. Like, again, these are things. This is like Ridley's resourcefulness that leads to Ghost in the Shell looking the way it does or Cyberpunk 2077 looking the way it yeah. does. Which is literally like Cyberpunk 2077 is such a gorgeous game because there's all these different colorful, interesting light sources of fluorescent light and tungsten light and all the, you know what I mean? Every LED surface and every, you know what I mean? And that's like yeah the visual language that he created by annoying yeah, every mean, other production and being like, right now, so you guys, guys using your neon today? Like <laughs> My thinking though is like, and I haven't played 2077, but I've seen the gameplay, I've seen the stuff is like that world I feel like feels smaller than that of Blade Runner when you can see the ground and the sky at the same time. It's like it's it's everything keeping it's like you see Blade Runner. It it rarely cuts to the to a, a you know, a low angle looking up. But you feel like all those buildings are huge and everything's so oppressive. Um, and because of that, it feels like a crowded, huge city. Yeah, uh um, it's insane how big that game is for looking that crowded too, because just like map wise mm-hmm. and everything, it's just ah, sorry. This isn't a cyberpunk podcast. Hit it. No, it's got it's got to be yeah. now. Well, what's all, what's so what's so it? interesting about cyberpunk that is like different in my opinion than GTA? Because the map is probably about the same size it's as three like times GTA the size five of GTA. or something. Okay, so there you go. Three times the size of GTA five. But it's you were three times also, wrong. it's probably only about that same size because it's vertically so high, right? Oh, there sure. are different there are different, you know, levels of the city that vertically as you go up and like different and it's so stacked and so off centered and stuff that like it is huge once you realize like, oh shit. I can actually go upstairs up there and there's other shit up there. Yeah, it swallows like, you like a real city <laughs> swallows you, you know, like where it's like you can get lost on a street corner for like an hour. just like cleaning to, shit up. Sure. To where I've walked around in cyberpunk like you were talking about where I'm like, this has been this is an act of city planning. Like this is well, like, incredible. And I think Blade Runner sort of effectively makes you think like, oh, all of those alleyways lead somewhere. Right. Right. And David People says he was uh, he was on set one day during prep 
all of the crew had struck and turned the lights down and he was in Deckard's apartment set and sat down on the couch and just felt like people lived there. Or it's like, this is a home. This is a place. That's cool. Well, and that's like your goal as a set designer. Like you always want it to make it feel yeah. like a real. Place. And for Ridley at the time, his goal as a director. Um, so, so that's all to say, this is a movie about a detective. It's a movie uh, about a detective with a big oh, guns. It's a movie about the motherfucking bear. <laughs> <laughs> um, small designers were also employed for like small stuff. Uh, so like the umbrellas oh, or the watches or Lupetti. props or <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I know when I get mad at a bit, it makes it happen more. (laughs) My eighth grade French is really shining today, guys. Um, so this sort of cultural mess happens because, like, tons of tons of different smaller things are being made, like out of garages from little small production houses or just like random designers. So things like the umbrellas were just like made in a garage by not necessarily the prop master, and what that again results in is Ridley Scott's and Sid Mead's idea of, like, a cultural mess in future Los Angeles. Um, two... And that really plays... That really strengthens everything, yeah, too, it I does. feel like. Oh, for sure. It really helps. And, and it's something that's sort of missing now from everything post-Blade Runner where, well, you know, Blade Runner is doing those guys' idea of the future and everything else is doing Blade Runner. You know, you what? rarely see a sci-fi movie that's like, you've never seen this. Like, I think Children of Men is a, is an, an exception where like, that's a whole other idea of a future. <laughs> right. Because well, right. it feels like all those other movies have seen Blade Runner. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. yeah, like that movie exists in that universe. So that's why those things become real, you know, or is this? Whereas to- Blade Runner sees the future. Yeah. Um, So two actual locations in L.A. were used which were the Bradbury building and uh, Union Station. Uh, Bradbury building used for um, the hotel where the replicants are sort of staying with J.F. Sebastian. Um, and uh, the and Union Station used for the police station that Deckard comes and meets up at at the beginning. So every time... The office... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. But every time I go to L.A. with a friend of the pod, a friend in real life, Garrett Hall... He goes, hey, man, we got to go to that Blade Runner hotel. <laughs> We've never been, but he's always like, oh, man, I want to go to the Blade Runner hotel. Well, so that that building, I'll say I didn't have this in the notes because it seemed, but that Blade, that building, the way it cuts with the set of the hotel room, the apartment or whatever, makes no sense. And a producer eventually said, like, does it make? It doesn't really make sense, Ridley, to look at the corridors of the Bradbury Building and then cut to these huge plaster walls. And Ridley said, "Quote: Don't rationalize at me." So, uh, when you guys watch those scenes, do you guys also think about the ending to Five Hundred Days of Summer, which was filmed in the same building? Yes. What, where he meets Autumn? Yeah, where he meets Autumn. He meets Autumn. Uh, <laughs> I do. Autumn. I do. When when. Uh, when Daryl Hannah picks up Harrison Ford by his nostrils, I think about, uh, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt meeting Autumn. He looks at the camera like, that's just like the last girl's name. The Bradbury building has been in a lot of movies, man. 
Oh, hell yeah. Really a, a, an interesting piece of architecture. But I believe Blade Runner has added the most mannequins to the Bradbury building of any movie. I don't know. They did film some Bosch there. so. Oh, yeah. And there was <laughs> that whole... I forgot about that whole plot line. Because Amazon likes to just film with mannequins and then just CGI yeah. on their faces. It's cheaper. It's cheaper. They're all about... It's cheaper. But it's all about the bottom line with Bosch. <laughs> um, the office built for the police station set at Union Station um, was... It's, it still stands. It's still in Union Station right there. Um, and the production basically let them keep it in exchange for not having to pay a location fee. <laughs> so it's like, we'll build you an office if we get to film in it before you have it. <laughs> hey, I like that. That's pretty cool. That's a good deal. Yeah. No, again, Ridley, that's Ridley that's resourceful. Seems, that's a very Ridley deal. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um. So that's like Ridley walking into an interview with like their the Los Angeles city planner, and he walks into the interview with like a, a neon umbrella. <laughs> the guy's like, "Sorry, why are you here?" <laughs> Let me tell you about this mouse. <laughs> when I say two words, dude, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Don't say fucking bear. I am tired of hearing that it should be a bear. <laughs> Okay, if we can film at Union Station, I'll make it a goddamn bear. We'll call it Bear. You happy? <laughs> His name will be fucking Bear. You um, all see. <laughs> so, during all this prep, David Peoples would be bringing, like, rewritten pages to Ridley on the set. Um, but but by the time he would get there, Ridley would have newer ideas. Oh, my God. Which is, yeah, what a blast that had to be. That's great. <laughs> Yeah. So I have some ideas of the ideas he wrote. Don't worry. Those are already <laughs> outdated. Uh, he's a bear now. Yeah. Leave it all behind. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. And he's got a friend, too. What's his name? Well, do you have a couple hours? Because he's a whole different thing. <laughs> How Someone on Reddit is going to have a lot of questions. How many times does Ridley start a conversation with, do you have a couple hours? Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> it's literally like, hey, Ridley, what color should his pants be in this scene? Well, do you have a couple hours? Because, I mean, like, here's when my, are we shooting? Here's my thing. Right, let's I make a chart, think, track his emotions. <laughs> I don't think Ridley has ever, like, measured time in hours or people time. He just measured in, in cigars, you know? He's like, you got it's a couple really cigars? Not. <laughs> it's really time in Ridleyville. Yeah. That's a six Cuban discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what kind of lens do you want? Well, do you have Excel open, or should I open my own Excel? Like we gotta, <laughs> we gotta look into this. Did you get my email or what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which email did you send it from? I have a couple. Um, Ridley the, mail. So we're now at the first day of shooting. Oh, they won't. It is the scene they where Deckard meets fuck me. Get you. This is what happens when someone's two syringes deep. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the first day of shooting, the scene, uh, it's the scene where Deckard meets Rachel in Tyrell's building and, you know, gives her the Voight comp test and all that. Uh, Ridley walks in and first thing in the morning asks that the humongous pillars that are spread all across the set be turned upside down. Power move. Now, it's a set with no ceiling, so this is possible. But the uh, the uh, 
uh, production designer basically looks at him as if he's just said, can you turn the fucking set upside down? He goes to the AD. It's seven in the morning and says, uh, you need to come back at two. So seven hours later, they were upside down and the floor, because the floors had to be repolished. If you look at that scene, everything's so bright and shimmery and reflective um, that, uh, you know, it, it had to be completely clean. No visible footsteps, no nothing. And with a crew like that, of course, it's going to show up. So they had to, moving it, scuffed everything up. They had to repolish the floors. So at the end of the first day of production, they were five days behind. Um, and on that you know what how many days it is in French legend I I would love to not know that sank Um, legendary uh, visual effects supervisor Douglas Trumbull who uh, uh, did the Stargate in 2001 he basically like if anything looked cool in a movie for from like 65 to 85 it was him and he yeah, was, was focused on rear projection for the giant horizon out the window. And everyone's concerned with the way Ridley has this shot. And Ridley comes up with the idea that he just wants everything to be shimmering. This comes up on the set. And everyone asks, like, is it water? Is it motivated? And he goes like, no, I just need it. Sh- I just need everything kind of shimmering like there's water around. This obviously comes back in Jared Leto's scenes in yeah. 2049. But that is at least motivated by water. And so Deacons so was able to play with it spend several scenes showing you that specifically half the floor is, in fact, water. Sure. Whereas this, it was more Ridley's sort of commercial background of, like, I need shit to just look fucking crazy. And they're sitting yeah. at a table, and he it's like he couldn't handle. It needs to look like a jewelry commercial. like Right. And yeah. so, and, and again, this all comes back to, like, at the end of this, they made Blade Runner. At the end of it, it is a scene, like, you remember that textural feeling of, of that weird last minute demand he made of a ton of people. Yeah. Um, so Harrison Ford is becoming upset and because up until then he'd worked with uh, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and the Cope. Da- da- Cope. Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and who could forget Harrison Ford's turn in Apocalypse Now as that one guy? Yeah. Crushed so it. those directors had brought him in sort of like creatively and gotten him involved. And if you hear an interview with Harrison Ford, it's like he's so engaged if you try to engage with him. Sure. But he's so checked out if like he's kind of like that. I, I get a sense like he's like a Bruce Willis type where he maybe tests his directors pretty quick and decides if he's going to care or not. He reminds me of a, of a smart kid with senioritis. Where it's like like, this kid, I don't have to care, and I'm gonna get into Harvard. Yeah, exactly. Like, but he just doesn't give a shit because he's set. That's sort of Samuel Jackson has that too. Of like, I don't even have to try, and at the end of the day, I'm Samuel Jackson. Yeah, but when Samuel Jackson wants to give a shit, oh, this fucker can turn it on. Same. I again, I think it's same with both of them. Even if you just compare like Return of the Jedi to Force Awakens, I feel like Force Awakens, he's like there. You know, like whenever, yeah. again, if he's engaged with something, he's the best actor in the world. His death scene in Star Wars, he's he knows that like oh, a character boy. that is beloved is dying. You know what I mean? Like he, he shows it. up to be the best minute and a half of Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it doesn't even fix his hair. No, that was it. Was he did say? I'm. I'm sure he did say. I'm not cutting my fucking hair. He's like, no, I'm good. I just got off the plane. So, <laughs> where do we shoot? And they, yeah, they shot that scene in the terminal with a bunch of green screen. <laughs> yeah, he just got right back it. on the plane. He made a he made like a forced water landing and then just got right onto the set. Yes. Um. So he he what Harrison isn't getting that. Uh, relationship with Ridley Scott who is again acting much more like a technician so Harrison apparently just didn't talk to many people he talked to Sean Young a little bit because Sean Young as Rachel had difficulty giving like Ridley what he wanted and Ridley really sort of micromanaged that performance Um, and also their sex scene was there was a lot of figuring it out and Ridley eventually stumbled on what I think is like one of the more challenging parts of this movie where how aggressive Deckard is in that scene and the sort of shove into the window, which Sean Young was like at the time way not into. Yeah. And apparently this was the one moment of levity with Harrison Ford is Harrison. I think again, like kind of a consummate professional um, recognizes that like, she is not okay with us doing this. We've done this for 14 takes I'm shoving her in. I'm like, this isn't fun for her. And so in his weird, like, Harrison Ford, this is what's going to fix this way, he walks halfway off set, waits for her to look, and he moons her, which she says was the greatest thing that ever happened to her on that set. You think she like, had a, she got There a was this weird camaraderie that he has, and I think he still has with actors, of like, I, he, and he, I think he can just take temperature. Of like this director is not giving Harrison us what we want. Ford it's you this? and me against yes. the parents, you know. Interesting. So like, yeah, Harrison this Ford way of like, what's going to make her laugh? What's going to make her, uh, you know, relax? Because she's not getting that from the person that both of us should be getting relaxation from. Whereas he was much more the pro. He was constantly reminding her about eye lines and not mumbling, and uh, he would turn things off. Like, I don't want to loop this scene. Turn off all this noise. And she was learning a lot about acting from him. So. The two of them apparently really bonded after that moment of sort of he recognized that she was a little in over her head with the way Ridley was directing her. Um, so another element of this, the cinematography, which is pretty unbelievable. Pretty incredible. Yeah. And something that 2049 doesn't quite do, which is in this, it's really leaning into the sort of noir side of it. It's a much more shadowy film, whereas like, you know, and I was gonna say, twenty forty nine feels much more a movie in rooms, doesn't it? Yeah, hundred until it is only movies until outside. it's until yeah, it's, only until it's like an action outside piece. But like once he goes to Vegas, it's mostly exteriors. Uh, but before then, it's mostly him like in his apartment talking to holograms and like, you know, yeah. prostitutes. No, I do. Uh, the cinematography in this movie is incredible. Uh, I bet being the cinematographer for Ridley Scott in this movie was uh, not fun. So actually, <laughs> uh, not yet. Well, so here's the answer. It wasn't, but not because of Ridley. Okay. The cinematographer's legendary cinematographer, Jordan Cronenworth, whose son, Jeff Cronenworth, was David Fincher's cinematographer for years. Oh. Um, and you can kind of see 
very similar styles to sort of this and like seven or you know fight club sure. um so jordan Cronowith had been sick for years with with what was later diagnosed as parkinson's and throughout the entire shoot he was becoming frustrated with his limited physical abilities he couldn't get up he couldn't get in there um and he even spent the last month and a half of this shoot in a wheelchair uh, and when offered the chance to sort of replace or figure this out, Ridley just stuck by him. Ridley knew that this, like, again, Ridley saw Blade Runner when no one else did. He's like, no, this guy's shooting Blade Runner. We have to stick by him. Um, so, no, he, Jordan Cronoweth and, and Ridley's relationship apparently was terrific. I think, again, because he was giving Ridley exactly what he wanted. And cinematography, I think, is always the thing that most directors have no say in there's a limit to what a cinema, what a director can tell a cinematographer to do. Mm -hmm. You know, like those are also, especially back in film where there was no playback, there was no, there was limited video, you know, monitoring options. It's kind of like he, you had, you had to trust your cinematographer for Whereas now you have Steven Soderbergh or Paul Thomas Anderson shooting their own movies. Right. Cause with um, a gaffer and a key grip, they can pretty much just get that done. You know Which is I mean? exactly they're, how they're picking uh, all the camera things anyway. So it's like ex exactly how P.T. Anderson shot um, Phantom Thread, where there is no credited cinematographer on Phantom Thread. It's him, his key grip, his gaffer and his camera uh, operator. They had just shot like a year's worth of Radiohead videos on film to sort of as camera tests and then just made Phantom Thread. Um, so two last things is that so. The refrigerator where Beatty gets the eyes, right, um, was a real refrigerator. Because even still today, it's almost impossible to do convincing digital fake like breath. Mm. So they just needed that. And they needed real ice. They needed that. He, you know, really wanted that set to be what it was. Um, but that fridge had no temperature control. It was just a meat locker. It was just meant to freeze. Um, and because of that, it caused the camera equipment to freeze. The oil would completely dry out. So oh, the cameras sucks. had to be taken out of the set every 20 minutes. Um, it was also lit with carbon arc lighting. So Ugh. that mixed with the lack of oxygen, the entire casting crew within an hour started getting sick with carbon monoxide poisoning. So why are everyone, you using carbon art? What fucking, the fuck are you doing? This is just killing. common. This was this was uh, common lighting for Cronin with at the time. I think for certain sets they started not not doing that. Um, oh my so god! So they had to. Force do you know, everybody... do you know how those lights used to work back in the day? What do you got? It's very it's very intriguing. I think they probably changed them from. Uh, that time but the a carbon arc is literally what it sounds like there's two pieces of carbon and there is a giant arc of electricity happening between the two right and you yeah. sort of manipulate where the pieces of carbon are to sort of manipulate how strong the light becomes but back in the day like in like the 50s those were almost the only kind of light that was feasible right uh, mm -hmm. for like major lights so like if you watch those old school like uh, big like Fred Astaire musical numbers where there's like 75 dancers and all these people and all the cameras mm -hmm. moving and the sets are all moving and all this shit they're also using carbon light carbon arc lights for those 
And back in those days, the carbon would burn faster so you had to actually rotate the giant pieces of carbon in unison so it took two people on each light rotating this giant piece of fucking carbon god damn like that's why i'm like why are they using carbon arc lights that seems like the least so that's no good no good very bad (laughs) yeah don't do it um now so that that resorted like everyone had to get out of the fridge open it up, put fans on. And that obviously thawed out the freezer. Yeah. So again, this is an example of like one technical problem slowing down days of production. Um, now I want to end with this. Our listeners have already seen that this is part one. Blade Runner is such a storied and has so many weird, crazy episodes that uh, the boys have been happy have been nice enough to let me do a two-part episode on Blade Runner to get every little detail in there. So check back next week for part two where we get into a little more of the production, the post-production, and sort of the journey of all seven cuts of this movie. But I want to leave you with this because it's really weird. I want to ask if a listener or you two can do some research for me. So there was an alternate ending for this film that featured Beatty crushing Tyrell's head as in the film but when he does this bolts screws and sparks shoot out of Tyrell revealing that Tyrell himself was a Nexus 6 or beyond whoa uh Batty then took an elevator up one more floor in the Tyrell building to reveal that the real Tyrell had been dead for a while with his body being kept in a large floating sarcophagus designed by Sid Mead. And then this sort of realization of the lie of the false god is what sends Batty on his rampage. Now, obviously, in the finished film, it is just sort of killing his own god that and his own father that sends him on this rampage. Sure. Now... I don't know if I have Nelson Mandela affected myself into this, but I swear I remember reading that there was an alternate ending, and I'm watching this documentary thinking they're about to talk about this, and they don't. And I think I'm going insane, so I'm just pleading to you guys, I need help. I'm convinced that there was an alternate ending of the film, Beatty crushes Tyrell, he's a replicant, He goes up the elevator, but does not find the real Tyrell. I remember reading somewhere that Batty finds a large water tank in which there is one giant great white shark that telepathically communicates to Batty that that he is Tyrell and created all of life. I hear you typing, Kyle. I can't find it, but I couldn't have just invented that. (laughs) So insane. No, it's like a wild thing that, like, there's no way it was a dream. There's no way. So I guess while we look into it a little more, Richard, do you think that would have been cool? I think that would have been awesome. It would have been like a video game. Like, it would have been a total video game ending. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely it sounds like a controversial video game. It ending. honestly sounds like the ending of a Futurama episode that uh but not in like 
practice, but in actual or like, like a Hideo controls. Kojima like side mission. Yeah, honestly, it sounds like something that happened in Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, where it was like you do a bunch of side yeah. So if there's a listener who knows about this, there's no way it's purely out of my head. I've thought about this shark all the time. I watched the documentary. They never mentioned the shark, and so now I'm wondering, did the shark ever exist? But really, do well. See, then I was like, there was a, a related search term called sharks? Blade, Blade Runner whale, and I was like, well, maybe it was a whale, and that's what Spike is misremembering. But no, there's just a humpback whale whose uh, back looks like a blade, so people call him Blade Runner. You know, Blade Runner has been attributed to a lot of things, including Oscar Pistorius. <laughs> um, so there's a lot. Blade Runner is has not aged well as a a pair of two words sure well so at this point uh, we leave off with there is more production to be uh, chronicled in fact the production becomes an even greater problem for Ridley Scott post production becomes a mess release is a nightmare and it's entire journey for basically 35 years to a finished blu-ray release of the, the final cut Will wow. be next week. Incredible! That was a dope episode, Spike. Thank you yeah, so thank much, you, Spike. Oh man, thank you. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Kyle Anderson Comedy, uh, and on my YouTube at Kyle Anderson Comedy on there as well. Check uh, that out. You can follow me on Instagram at Rich Neasy. You can uh, add me on PlayStation. We'll play some games together. Not Cyberpunk. It's single player. Uh, Pepper Jack fan on there. Um, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Bold. Is it gonna be multiplayer? I feel like it's like perf it's like ripe for like a GTA online type thing. That's that's what people want and they were saying they're gonna try, but it looks like they're dealing with so many they're putting out. They so can't even do the right offline now. thing yet. Yeah, so they're getting You can find me on Instagram at HG Spike and thank you to our uh, you know, the guy that does the music at the beginning of this, Fan Foley, his new album, Got the Whole Room Looking at Me, is available wherever you listen to music, I promise. Got that whole room. Bon nuit, demons. Bye. Au revoir. Au revoir, you sante bitches. Blowing so much pack, look like Drift Racing Movie. In here with the gang, every time we link a movie.